in there. Why don't you tell us more about that, Leah? I would love to tell you about some events. So, are going to the Mennonite Hustle. You can find that date in your or online. Another GC Kid uh, announcement is summer camp is finally open. You can register now. I know it's hard to think about summer when it's about to snow, but go ahead. Amen. We're about to do the Lord's Supper, so we've got a video that shows us about that, so go ahead and watch it. We are about to participate in what the Bible calls the Lord's Supper. As members of Great Commission Church, we enjoy being reminded that Christ Jesus died for our sins. The Bible says the wages, he is the one who helps us to keep loving God and loving each other. We proclaim he is alive and coming back one day. If you are a guest here today and share this saving faith in the Lord Jesus,
book, man, it's been so good. We were talking about it during small group, and a lot of us were really thankful for the promise of the day that we read and were able to meditate on. And instead of getting frustrated with the situation that probably should have frustrated us, we were able to focus on the Lord and say, hey, God, you know what? You promised. Um, and we're focusing on that. And so, hey, it's not too late to get going on this. Here's what I suggest. There's some in the lobby on your way out. Grab one of these and just pick up on the day. And you can just start right there and continue with us. And it's been a good journey so far, and we got lots more in there, so I'd encourage you to do that. We're going to give today, uh, so you can find that envelope if you're choosing to give. There's some digital ways on there as well. I wanted to share a couple things with you, though. Uh, kind of something to think about as we give. I love when there's uh, when giving is attached to joy because the Bible tells us to be cheerful givers. So I need some uh, little extra oomph from time to time. And here's how I got it. Uh, on Saturdays, there's some cool stuff that's happening. Show the first picture up there. You see that right there in the foreground. You can see uh, my little girl Everly playing basketball with Uncle Michael. But I want you to pay attention to the background. You see Kyle there? He's talking to um, a young man who is... Uh, uh, new to the air, new to our church and visiting his kids playing ball with us and what he's doing is just building relationships talking with him uh, loving on him encouraging him and we found out that's Nate he lives right across the street he's a good guy man uh, he's helping plant a church and so we're able to pray for him and um, hey, I'll tell you what though uh, pray for that church the world needs more churches not less and and he said it's not going as good as they want and uh, Here's what I know. I get a body of believers praying, and I think if God wants that church, it'll happen. Uh, if not, Nate, I bet he'll visit right here. He lives across the street, and so Kyle's doing a great job. And, uh, man, I've seen this over and over again. Our church members coming and just building relationships uh, with folks from the community, and it's so good. And Here's what else I want to show you. Go to the next picture. Look at that. Jennifer Jones, our children's director, what she's doing is gathering up the little kids during halftime, teaching them the gospel, helping them memorize gospel verses, and I'll tell you, if you could see the parents' faces, every single one of them is locked on. Because what they're witnessing is their, their kids being discipled. And it's beautiful. Even if they're not believers, they're sitting there watching Jennifer take their kids, teach them the scriptures, pass it along. And, uh, man, it is just a thing of beauty. And Don McKenzie did this last Saturday. Excellent job as well. But, hey, you are a part of that. That's what I wanted to communicate. And I wanted you, when you give joyfully, know that, hey, I am... I am the reason that those kids are hearing the gospel in that moment. So connect the dots there in your mind and, and have joy when you give this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Ushers, go ahead and come forward. We're going to receive that, but let me pray for these. Only you can take these uh, funds that we're going to give and turn it into uh, eternal worth. And God, we ask you to do that in this place. As we give, let, us, let it be joyful giving. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and we're going to pass those plates. You can give if you choose. If you want to do digitally, you can do that real quick or... Uh, however you need to do that. And hey, as those are passing, there's something else I want to show you that's exciting. We've had some baptisms, new members recently. I got a video for you, so celebrate with me while watching this video.
just praise you, God. We lift up the name Jesus in this place. God, I pray that you would give us hearts of worship. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word this morning. God, change us. Let us be different when we leave than when we came. Lord, your name be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the sermon before the snowstorm. Got to get ready. I'm Trevor Davis. I'm GCC's pastor. If you're, if you're new, thanks for being with us today. And it's a great day for me. I got one more sermon to preach. I got an elders lunch meeting. We get to celebrate all God's doing. And then when that's over, I'm going to my house. I'm closing the door. I'm making a fire in my fireplace. And I will see you people later. I don't know what it's going to be. But, uh, we, you know, it's coming, and I work from home anyway, so just doing some more sermons for all you people. Uh, but, hey, this is a great day. The Lord, the Lord met with us in the first service, and he already has today in the second. And this 29 Days of Promise series that we're in has been encouraging to so many. The daily devotions, let me come behind Jacob and say, take that counsel and advice from him. Uh, start today. Get that, get that promise book do a daily devotion with the rest of our church for the rest of this month and be encouraged with us. Find, in, late in the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews in your Bible. That's going to be where we find our text for today's promise of 29 days of promise. And as you're finding that, if you knew, the, the verses and things will be on the screen. Uh, if you have a Bible, look in your Bible, learn that discipline and so forth. I didn't tell the first service, got me a new Bible. Um, I wore the other $40 one out. This one didn't cost $40, but I got a good sale. They tell me it's made of goat skin. I'm pretty uh, excited about that. It just feels like leather to me. I don't know what goat skin feels like, but what's, what, what matters is not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside of this book. And I want to I say to you, uh, I want to ask you this question. How does the world judge Christians? I mean, in our culture, when they look at us, when they evaluate us, uh, what are, the, what are the scales that they're using? What, how, how are they measuring? How does the world judge Christians? Here's the answer. Not by what we teach, but by the way we live. Now, they really don't care what you teach. They don't care about doctrine. Um, they think they know enough about Jesus to know that he was really, really good, and we live in a world that's really, really bad, and they're looking to see if the people that have been baptized and claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior live any differently than all those around them. So, if we're being judged by our lives and the way we live and not by what we teach, then here's my question. What, what qualities of life, then, will positively influence and get the attention of the Muslim family that lives down the street? Or, what kind of personal interaction will be appealing to the Mexican man who moved into the neighborhood and doesn't speak much English? Let's bring it even closer to home. What does that young unmarried couple who live together in the apartment downstairs, what do they need to see in us since they're already turned off by church and they know next to nothing about the Bible? These are important questions, and the scriptures give lots of answers in the same kind of family of truth all over the Bible. But in our text today, in, in Hebrews chapter 13, Verses 5 and 6, there's one answer that we're going to look at that's also a promise from God. So here's the text, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. 
let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The promise is tucked away in there from the Lord is, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. What does that mean? Let's bow in prayer and ask the Lord to help us understand it. Father, we humble ourselves before you, praying to a God we can't see, but we know who is it that is there. And we ask that you give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive the bread of life, as you called it, the truth from heaven. God, help me to say it clearly, simply, plainly. And God, begin to do the transforming work of sanctifying your saints and saving sinners by the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. That's God's promise to us in Hebrews 13. It's written to, in the, in the book of Hebrews, all of the Jewish believers scattered through the known world at the time, and by extension, it lands in your seat. So what does, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you mean? Well, it means two things. God promises when he says, I will never leave you. And here's what he means. I will not withdraw my presence. I will not withdraw my presence is what I will never leave you means. I will not forsake you means I will not withdraw my help. I won't withdraw my help. So I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you means you'll always have me and you'll always, you'll always have what you need from me. You'll have my help. So now that we know what it means, I want to point out in our text that this promise from God is especially emphatic. In English, it says, for he himself has said. Now, this wasn't the council of heaven saying it. It was God himself speaking it from his throne. Very specific, very emphatic. What did he say? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. This is a good time to show this verse that I read in passing last week, putting, on, putting it on the screen. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God's batting a thousand on his promises, brothers and sisters. Every one of them he's made good. In his commentary on these verses, John Brown wrote, what is all the wealth and honor and pleasure of the world? If he's not with us, if he leaves us, what matters it? What's left behind? And if he does not leave us, what matters who or what forsakes us? The greatest treasure in all of life is for you to know God. The greatest possession in all of life is for you to have God and have eternal life by extension. What does it matter if you gain the whole world? And lose your own soul, the Lord Jesus says. So that's kind of the introductory idea. I've kind of told you what the promise is and what it means. For the rest of the sermon, I'm going to give you one question and three answers to the question. 
The one question is, so what? How does, how does this promise help us? If God says, I never leave you, I won't forsake you, what's the big idea? What's the so what in my life, preacher? Well, I'll give you three answers. Number one, this promise shows us why we can live a satisfied life. Each week, I preach to people full of God's spirit, walking in joy, an open heaven over the top of them. Everything's going right, and God is showing up. Preach to those folks. And they're not as many as you would expect. And also every Sunday, I speak to people who behind the mask, behind the smiles and the pretty clothes and the, and the chit-chat in the lobby, everything's going wrong and, and they hate their very existence. Dissatisfied, empty, hoping that at church they can find something more. And so it's very important that you hear a promise of God like this so that you can know not only how to live a satisfied life, know why you can. And you can have that emptiness filled by the power of Jesus Christ. This promise shows us why we can live a satisfied life. When the verse says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Now, covetousness is a Bible religious word. Can we agree on that? But I want to say something to us. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you for the rest of your life to be a learner. Always be a learner. In fact, not just settle for being a learner, just decide you're going to be a leader. And if you, if you decide you're going to be a learner and a leader, leaders are readers. It rhymes, you can remember that. Well, pastor, I don't like to read. You have a phone, you read all the time. Yes? And in fact, we live in 2024 when you can push a button on your phone and some, somebody will read something to you. Well, we have zero excuse. But I want to challenge you to be a learner and a leader so that you read things, especially the Bible, and say, God, not only do I want to be a learner, as I read, I'm going to add words to my word bank. You remember that in elementary school? You got like the word bank on the test, and it's like eight words, but there's seven questions, and, and, and there's going to be one word in that bank that's not one of the answers to the question, so you don't want to pick it. And, but the whole idea is to, is to expand the words that you know, expand your vocabulary. Let me challenge you. When it comes to word like, words like covetousness, God wants you to know that word, use it, and know what it means. You're not going to learn that at school. You're not going to learn it on your phone. You're not going to learn that by watching the news. But you learn it from the Bible and say, look, look, Lord, you gave me my brain. You gave me my mind. I want to learn the words of Jesus. Is that, is that too much to ask, right? So you get to this word covetousness. Nobody uses it. You may not know what it means. I'm going to tell you kind of what it means. Now, like, add it to yourself and learn it. Here, here's here's a, an attempt at a definition of what covetousness is. It's really an undue regard for anything present, anything sensible, anything seen, anything temporary. If you covet something, it means you desire it and really, really want to have it. How many commandments did God give Moses on the stones on the mountain? Or did God give to Charlton Heston? How many? Ten, right? Like you got as many fingers as this. There's ten commandments and two of them tell you not to covet. Don't covet your neighbor's wife and don't, you know, don't covet your, your stuff. So we need to know what coveting means. It means this desire to acquire, this, man, I, I just want, like I'm watching, the, the, the new thing is the Stanley Cups, Right? 
That's really confusing to me because I thought that was the trophy the hockey players win, and I'm not even sure I know what hockey is. And now all these teenagers, you guys know what I'm talking about? It, like when I, when I was a kid, it wasn't Stanley Cups. It was Cabbage Patch Dolls. You guys remember Christmas season 1982? You can go look on YouTube and watch the mamas fight it out. It's amazing. Look, it's the new hot thing, and we have to have it. We'll go to any length. So, so this undue regard for, not for something that's not been invented yet. It's for things that are present, things that are sensible. You can smell, touch, and taste them and hear them. And then the, the greatest sense that you have, so you can see it. You, you covet things that your eyes see. And also things that are temporary. People covet things that they can't take with them when they die, or they'll be obsolete in just a few months or a few years. Let me say it this way. Coveting is to worldly wealth what marriage is to a husband and a wife. It's a love commitment. And when the scriptures say, keep your lives free from coveting, it's saying, you've got to break this commitment you have to getting more stuff, the thing that you've built your whole life around. I've got to move up. I've got to be promoted. I've got to have more. It's a love commitment. You think about it when you wake up. You say goodnight to it when you go to bed. That's the kind of commitment you have to a spouse not to a career, uh, not, to, not to a lifestyle. So <laughs> Donald Guthrie called this the menace of materialism. And a menace is something that comes in and stirs things up and ruins it all. What if I told you that Jesus had something to say about coveting? Luke 12, 15, our Lord said, take heed. And beware of covetousness because your life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things you possess. We forget this warning every time we ask someone, hey, what's that man worth over there? What's that woman's net worth? Because what we really mean is how much does she own? How much does he own? We never, we never say that and mean, What's the inner man that they have worth? Because we already know the answer to that. It's so precious, Jesus hung on a Roman cross for it. But in our culture is, however much stuff you have, however high you climb the ladder, however much influence you have in the community or where you work, that's what gives you value. That's ridiculous in the worldview of God. Well, if we're not supposed to covet, what's the opposite of coveting? Look at me. It's contentment. The verse says, be content with such things as you have. Literally, it means be content with the present things. This is a, it's a hard pill to swallow even for Christians today because you don't like your life. Many of you don't. You wish you had more. You wish you lived somewhere different. You wish you drove something better. You wish you wore uh, something with... The kids tell me more drip. What in the world is that? I, 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 you, you can't keep up with slang because it always just sounds so dumb. Um, I want you to know that the culture you live in is so unthinking. It's so caught up in the moment. So living only for the day. 
um, that if you dive into that, it will destroy you. It, it keeps your eyes off eternity and puts it on stuff you can't deal with right now. And Jesus says, take heed and beware. Apparently, apparently it's dangerous to covet. And apparently contentment is, there's not lots of examples out there to follow. Well, pastor, do, is contentment just passively accepting the inevitable? Is it just whatever's going to come is going to come? Whatever will be, will be. And I just have to, I just have to resign myself to it. Uh, that's not contentment uh, by the Bible standards in any way. Contentment in the Bible is understanding clearly that money is relative. Money, the value of money changes where you live, where, depending on where you live, what state you live in, what county you live in, what nation you live in, what continent you live on. In the early service, we had a man sitting right over there, uh, and he's a godly man, and he is leaving town, Lord willing, he's leaving town on Tuesday to go to Uganda and then drive across the border to Kenya to see our work in Kenya because he's got some, he has a heart for lost people but he's never gone to see the multitudes yet. And he's in his 60s. I said, look, Don, it's going to change your life. I said, the, the, as soon as you step off the plane and you smell Africa, as soon as you look around, as soon as you drive by the first slum that you've ever, your eyes have ever seen, you're never going to be the same. It's going to wreck you. Because if you've only been here, you haven't seen real poverty. Now, you've seen people that are poor compared to the average American, but every American is rich compared to the third world. And I can tell you, and I can preach about it passionately, but until you see it, you're not going to understand. Money's relative. And I'm telling you, you already got a lot, even if you're dissatisfied compared to planet Earth. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote about this, 1 Timothy 6. Verses 6, 7, and 8. Here's verse 6. Verse 6 is a math problem. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Here's the math problem. I know you didn't come to church to do math. But the math problem is you take some godliness, you add to it contentment, and that equals great gain. Now, our culture says that if you just look at what you have and you're thankful, if you look and say, you know what, it's enough, that's not a gain, that's a loss. Because the world will tell you the exact opposite of what God's truth is. First, you gotta get you some godliness. How do you get that? Well, you need to become a saved person. You need to become a person who's obeyed the gospel. You've trusted in Jesus Christ. You said, I'm selling out. I'm gonna be a radical Christian. I'm gonna be a little Christ. That's what Christian means. I'm gonna follow Jesus so much that people are gonna look at me and they're gonna think about Jesus. I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust in him. I'm, gonna, I'm going to turn away from my old life of sin where I was the boss and I rebelled against God. I'm going to mark myself publicly that this has happened by being baptized into my local church. I'm going to get involved in that local church. That lo I'm going to get me some godliness and get around people that walk with him. I'm going to get around folks that know. I'm going to get godliness and then I'm going to add to it my new attitude that I'm getting today having heard this sermon. I'm going to add to that contentment. I'm going to say, God, where I am in my life is good. I praise you for it because I'm living not for this life but for the next one. Amen. I'm going to get some godliness. I'm going to add contentment to it. And the result is gain, not loss. So verse 6 is a math problem. Verse 7 is something I used to 
kid around with my mom about. My mom was a middle school teacher, a coach, a basketball coach, a cheerleading coach. I went to too many hours of cheerleading camp. Shoot me now. It was, it was, it was rough when, it, when, you're a, when you're a 13-year-old boy. Actually, it was rough when you're an 8-year-old boy. When you became a 13-year-old boy, it wasn't so bad because the girls were pretty and they lost all their cooties. And so, so that, that happened. And going to track practice, my mom, she was a school gal. And, and so teachers get sayings. And one of my mom's sayings was, when she would get mad at me or my brothers, she would say, I brought you into this world, and I can sure take you out. Then I read my Bible after I became a Christian, and I found 1 Timothy 6, 7, which says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. So the next time my mom tried that on me, I got my Bible. And I showed her that the Lord disagreed with her discipline in the way she did it for me. And you know what she showed me? That she was kind of more ever-present than the Lord at that moment. Now, that kind of, we did a, <laughs> I did do that smart-like thing once. Um, but there's a great truth here. We brought nothing into the world. We take, like you came in the world a crying naked baby, nothing in your pockets. You didn't even have pockets. You didn't have clothes. And when you die, your body's going to be dead. They're going to put you in a, in a casket, and you're going to be dressed in a suit or, or, or a dress, but that's not going to do anything. Even if it has pockets, there's nothing you can take out of here. You're, you're leaving the way you came. So when you leave, if you can't put anything in your pockets, how can you pos- You need something of a possession that's not physical. You need the, the spiritual possession, which will be a verse I'll show you in a moment. Then the Apostle Paul attempts to define contentment as having food and clothing. With these, we shall be content. He's saying, Christians, look around. Think about your life differently than the world thinks about theirs. And define your life as if I have the necessities and I have God, I have all I need. Because even King David says, I was young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. Contentment. If you're, if you're connected to your local church and walking with God, you'll be amazed at how much more content you'll be in life. And I want to say this quickly. It's always, always, always spiritually dangerous to grow financially discontent. The next two verses in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Destruction and perdition are distinct in this verse because destruction means the loss of your physical life. Perdition is far worse. It's the destroying of your spiritual life in hell. Perdition is for those who reject Jesus Christ, live as their own Lord throughout this entire lifetime, die in their sins, they get perdition. And the Apostle Paul connects that to being discontent and loving money. That, that if, you, if you really evaluate all of your priorities, and, and most of them point back to, I've got to get more, I have to acquire more, I don't have enough, then you've got a false God and not the real God. You've broken the first commandment where he said, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And you're staring destruction and perdition in the face. Why is that? Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I think that's a timely word for the highly materialistic society and culture that we find ourselves living in. Pastor, are you saying, though, that it's wrong to want to improve my present circumstances? No. Pastor, are you saying that every ambition I have for success and promotion is contrary to God's purpose? No. Every believer should bring his best to work. And the Bible says that you will reap what you sow. So the question is, when it comes to improving your current circumstances, what are you sowing in the ground of your life? Because that's what you're going to get. And today, if you go, man, what I've been sowing is godless and worldly, then you need to repent and you need to have people pray for crop failure today. God, turn, turn the law of the harvest around. I didn't realize I had screwed this up so badly. So, that's why we read Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it heartily. That means from your heart. As to the Lord and not to men. You know, when you go to work every day, even if your supervisor's not there, your boss is still there because God's the boss. Yes? Can't get away from him. He's always watching and you're always representing him. So you do it as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. And let me say to you very clearly, material things can always be stripped away. But the promise of God's unending presence, that can never be stripped. I read this in my, in my studies this week, put it right in my notes. A restless concern for money is a betrayal of trust in God. So, that's the first long answer to the question, how does this promise help us? It, it shows us why we can live a satisfied life. The other two answers are very short. Answer number two, my brothers and my sisters, this promise reminds us that we are not alone. Some, one of the reasons many are so dissatisfied is they feel they're out there doing it by themselves, they're alone. The verse says, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. And let me tell you what that doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is, God is not my personal assistant for the plans that I've made. God's not your intern. He's not your secretary. So that you've, you've said, look, I, I laid out this plan in high school, I got the grades, I went to college, I got the degree, I, I, I landed the job at the company I want, and, and, and I'm going this way and I'm going up the ladder, and God, I need your help to smooth out all the tracks so that the train will run quickly. I need you to make all my plans work. And God goes, I'm God, you're not, so no. See, when... When we read that it says the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. He's not the personal assistant who makes all of our dreams come true. He's the one who responds to my desperate call for relief. And so if I'm preaching to those today who've made really bad decisions and messed it all up, and God's saying, you can cry out to me in your distress and I will hear you. I will be your help. In fact, 
when it says the Lord is my helper, literally it means the Lord is the one who comes to my help. He comes to my aid. The Christian believes that because God is good, the Lord will give what is good to him. Now, it's true, he'll work hard in his life. He'll be generous with his possessions. And then he'll just leave the rest to God. And if God wants him to do the George Jefferson and the Wheezy and move on up, then, then he'll let God promote him. I, I told the George Jefferson Wheezy thing in the, in the first service, and four very old voices laughed. And none of the kids. You need to go check them out. Well, that's the answer to number two. The, this promise reminds us we're not alone. He's our helper. And here's number three. This promise protects us from the fear of man. One of the reasons people are discontent is they don't fit in. They want to be in the in crowd. They want to be in that cool group and never get into it. They don't, have, they don't have what it takes. So they feel lonely. They feel rejected. They just want somebody to say, come be with us. But the world is cruel and they don't get that. And so we read, what can man do to me? Did you know that it's possible to covet popularity and be prepared to make almost any sacrifice to acquire it? Young, young teenage girls will lower themselves and give themselves away just to, just to have somebody say, I love you. Uh, young, young men will will throw themselves into the addiction of drugs and alcohol because they see their friends do it and their friends are like the guys they want to be friends with. If you want to be with us, you got to do this nonsense. I mean, folks will do almost anything. And they answer the question, what can man do to me? Well, he can do a lot. God says that's not the answer at all. Believers know that the fear of man is just as enslaving as the love of money. But when the Lord is our helper, we're released from that kind of tyranny. Now, if you look in your, in your Bible, you'll see that I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you is in quotations. That means it's a promise that came from somewhere else in the Bible. It goes all the way back to Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. It's so early in the book, you would expect that promise to be God speaking to Joshua himself, and you'd be right. Here's the verse, Joshua 1, 5. God says to Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. How would you like for heaven to tell you that you're going to be a veritable superman on earth? Because that's what God told Joshua. Well, how do you know? Because the next thing he says was, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. Well, how was God with Moses? Do you, do you remember when it was either Moses or Charlton Heston you pick? He went up the mountain with God for 40 days. Do you remember what happened when he came down? The people said, Moses, cover your head and your face. You're shining the majesty of God, and we can hardly look at you. It hurts too much. And Joshua hears God say, as long as you're on earth, no man will be able to stand before you or withstand you. Because what I did for Moses, I'll do for you. And then he ends it with, Joshua, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Now I want you to take that cool promise off the pages of your Old Testament and put it right in the seat where you're sitting. 
because God promised to constantly be with Joshua in all his difficulties, in all of his trials, as he led the children of Israel into and throughout the promised land, and my brothers and my sisters in the same way. He repeats that promise to Christians in general in the New Testament. The Lord will be with his people in every age, in all of their difficulties, in all of their trials. And so if you're going through one today, you have this promise to rest on. Now, when it comes to illustrating this, I want to tell a story. It's a longer story. It's a true story. You're going to like this story. I want to tell you about a man named Athanasius. Have you ever heard of Athanasius? Athanasius lived in the fourth century. He was a theologian. He was a pastor. He was the bishop over every Christian in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. And he was an absolute lion in the fight for sound doctrine. Athanasius led the charge to protect the church from what's called the Arian heresy. It was called the Arian heresy because of a a false teacher that had sneaked his way into the church. His name was Arius. And so what he taught was Jesus was not really God. He was not fully God. He was created by God. He's God's best creation, but he's not God himself. Athanasius understood this to be false. He understood this to be something that would destroy the church. And so he stood his ground with his writings, with his preaching, and with his leadership against Arius. And he had Arius removed from membership in the church and, and stuck him with the tag of a heretic. Now, Athanasius was such a polarizing figure that of his excellent 45-year-long ministry, 17 of those 45 years when you add them all up, he spent in five separate exiles. That is when the government comes in, removes you from your church, removes you from your town, takes you away from everything you know and love, and, and punishes you and says and, and tells you, please don't minister like this anymore. And after several years, they go, well, maybe you're reformed, you can come back. Well, nothing could snatch the truth away from Athanasius. In fact, he gained the nickname Athanasius Contra Mundum. That's Latin for Athanasius against the world. Pretty cool nickname. The Roman emperor at the time was a man named Constantine. Do you remember the town called Constantinople? It is now, the day, it is now called Istanbul. It's in Turkey. Constantine saw a vision of a, of a Christian cross over the bridge as he was about to go to battle. He took that as heaven telling him to become a Christian. He, he con- converted and was baptized, made all of his soldiers be baptized, and declared that the whole Roman Empire was now a Christian nation. That really happened. This all happened in the 4th century, the 300s. Constantine considered Athanasius a counselor, and he listened to him. But Constantine was also sympathetic to Arius and his guys. And so during this time, Constantine was trying, this is funny, the Roman emperor was trying to do something. He was trying to get Arius reinstated into church membership, but there was something standing in the way. And what was standing in the way was Athanasius and the truth. And so Athanasius tells the Roman emperor, no, your boy may not be allowed to come back into our church. He has not repented of his heresy. So Athanasius was so strong and powerful, he was able to tell the Roman emperor no and live to tell about it. Well, 
Athanasius had made a few enemies. They were all friends with Arius. One of them was a man named Eusebius of Nicomedia. And Eusebius and his boys began to plot in a way to get Athanasius removed from the Alexandrian church so that their friends and that they could all come back into church and not believe that Jesus was God. And so a ruthless example of the fraud that they would try to enact on Athanasius was a story that history has come to call the magic hand of Arsenius. Not Arsenio, remember that guy? Arsenius, he preceded him. Arsenius was a pastor of a little small church in a little country town in Egypt. Here's how the false story went. Somehow, Eusebius and his boys came into possession of a severed human hand. And they said, boys, we can do something with this. So they made up the false charge against Athanasius that he had cut off the hand of Pastor Arsenius and had him murdered because he didn't agree with him about the Bible. And then he took that severed hand off the dead body of Arsenius and he was using it to cast magic spells. That's the charges they came up, uh, that they invented against Athanasius. Constantine heard these charges and believed them and announced that Athanasius was, was to be tried over these false charges. He didn't know they were false. He says, you're going to be tried in the city of Antioch. Well, Constantine looked up and said, the trial date's coming and, I'm, and my entourage is nowhere near Antioch. We're going to move the trial to, to a town called Tyre, T-Y-R-E. In the meantime, Athanasius sent scouts all over Egypt saying, go find this Arsenius for me. We know it's false. Well, Eusebius and the boys took Arsenius and had him, you like these names, and they had him hidden in the desert with the monks so that nobody could find him until the trial was over. But as soon as Arsenius heard that the trial was moving to Tyre, he was staying out with the monks near Tyre. He could not help himself. He decided he was going to go attend the trial. So he goes and he checks into a hotel. The governor of the town of Tyre was a man named Archelaus. Archelaus was, was friends and allies with our friend Athanasius. When he got the word that this Arsenius guy was hiding out in a hotel in his town, he sent his guards and he arrested Arsenius privately and told no one. He calls Athanasius and he says, hey, we found him. What do you want to do? And Archelaus, the governor, says, let's have some fun. And Athanasius says, let's have a lot of fun with this. So Athanasius tells the governor, bound him up, put a cloak over his hands, have him stand outside the courtroom, and when it's time, I will call for him. You bring him in the courtroom. Don't bring him in until I tell you to bring him in. When the court proceedings started, Eusebius and the bad guys held up that stinking, rotting hand and said, this is the hand of Arsenius, the pastor. Athanasius has murdered him. He's cut his hand off. He's using this for the devil. This man needs to be ousted from his pastorate and punished. The emperor turns to Athanasius and says, what do you have to say for yourself? Athanasius stood up and he waved his hands for everybody to be quiet. Then he asked the entire room, have you indeed ever met the man, the pastor, named Arsenius? 
And he goes around and he points to every person in the room and just about everyone nodded their head, yes, we've met him. And he said, well then, I want you to say hello to him. Bring him in. And so the doors open and the governor of the town brings in a man, his head uncovered, his hands cloaked. And there's a gasp in the room because the ones who knew Arsenius could recognize him. He brings him down to the front and Athanasius played it perfectly. He waited, he was patient, and he said, now he looked at the hand, the hand was cut off to say it was the right hand. He knew not to expose this man's right hand first. He tells the governor, take the cloak off his left hand. And everyone expected to see a hand there, and it was. And then Athanasius ramped up the drama, and he waited in silence as everyone peered forward. And then he said, take the cloak off his other arm. And when the governor rolled back the cloak, there was the other hand. And there was not a word in the room. And then Athanasius turned to his accusers, but he said to the Roman emperor, would you have my accusers tell everyone what part of the body they cut off Arsenius' third hand from? Again, not a word. Trial over, right? I mean... Athanasius has been redeemed, yes? He's been vindicated, right? How did the trial end? The trial ended with the Roman emperor ruling against Athanasius, guilty of all charges, and sending him into a second exile. Pastor, how is it right or just for a man to be found guilty when the evidence is staring everyone in the face? Was it unjust? Yes. But that injustice produced 30 more years of fruitful ministry and writings and books at the pen of Athanasius, who was mistreated, that we're still benefiting from today. And when Athanasius was sent into exile for something everyone knew he didn't do, he was only following in the footsteps of his Lord and Savior, who was also unjustly tried, condemned, and put to death. Athanasius got what Jesus got, and the church has received great grace and a gift from it for the last 1,700 years. What can man do to me? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we're so thrilled with your word and how it's true and how it's powerful how it's timely, how it's like reading our mail today. And I pray for every believer in the room, every guest in the room who needs to be prayed for, who needs to make a decision. Holy Spirit, do your work and glorify the Son of God in Jesus' name. Faithful Church said, amen. Amen. As we're finishing up uh, this morning, go ahead and get that card back out and finish uh, putting prayer requests on there. If you have any next steps you'd like to take. And hey, I'll tell you, if you've been to the uh, Great Commission Church a few times now and you haven't went through the membership process or kind of been through that yet, I'd love to uh, have someone, uh, if you'd just mark, uh, become a member of Great Commission Church and we'll take care of the rest from there. But that'd be a good step for you, I believe. Um, hey, you can put these on the, there's boxes at the end of each row. Go ahead and put those in there on your way out. And uh, hey, we're going to pray for each other this morning. We'll have the prayer ministry team up front. Look, snow apocalypse still is going to be about three hours away, so you're good. So hey, if you're on the prayer ministry team, come forward. Everyone else stand up with me. You're on permanent stream, come forward. And hey, uh, 
Go ahead and make some lines, some prayer ministry time. Let's pray for each other. Let's not leave. Let's see what God has for us. And uh, So, hey, if you wanted to receive prayer, you come on forward, get in the line. Uh, everyone else is dismissed. You guys stay warm. See you soon.